Seated. Well, good morning. Today, the third Sunday of Advent, the theme is rejoice or joy. This week is sometimes called Rose or Gaudete Sunday, and that's from the Latin meaning rejoice. And we can hear this clearly in our epistle reading from St. Paul to rejoice always, rejoice at all times. The color of rose on the third Sunday of Advent is a shock to the penitential season to remind us not to forget that help is on the way, that Jesus Christ has already come, that Jesus continues to come to us today in numerous ways in prayer and worship through people in every circumstances, in the sacrament of Holy Communion and Baptism, through the other lesser sacraments, and Jesus is coming again. And these are all reasons to rejoice. Now, another shock to the system this morning, I told you it was coming, that John the Baptist comes on the scene and calls the religious leaders, you brood of vipers. Now, that's enough to shake us up, isn't it? Well, why did I decide to preach on this this morning? I should have asked Father Charles to do that. Our gospel reading this morning captures the words of Eugene. I'd like to capture the words by Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible, and I'd like to read it. It says, when crowds of people came out for baptism because it was the popular thing to do, John exploded and he said, you brood of snakes, what do you think that you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think that you can pull rank by claiming Abraham is father. Being a child of Abraham is neither here nor there. Children of Abraham are a dime a dozen. God can make children from stones if he wants. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes into the fire. Some powerful words on this third Sunday of Advent. John the Baptist says, you better prove your repentance by bearing the proper fruit. John was not going to be satisfied with mere outward ritual where the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is a mess. That was characteristics of the Pharisees or religious leaders of that day. It was a religion for the outside, leaving the inside untouched. Now, as you know, when John comes on the scene addressing this issue, Jesus comes on the scene and he certainly addresses the issue, turning it all around. What matters is the inside. Of course, yes, the outside matters. But you can't change the outside till the insides change. That's what the gospel's all about. So John uses a picture here, which Jesus develops later. The tree is meant to bear fruit, but if it doesn't bear fruit, it will be cut down. So the fruit must show that repentance has been genuine. You know, the warning echoes down the years and must be taken to heart by all baptized followers of Jesus Christ today. That is why our prayer of confession and repentance in our liturgy shows repentance, a clear turning around or away from the way that we were moving, the sin that we were involved in. It is calling us to reorient our life, to change our mind, to change our heart, to think again about our behavior and make the change. And it ends with this, that I might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. 
Now we cannot presume that everything is fine with us because we have shared in the great Christian mystery, the, the new exodus coming through the water of baptism with all that it means, but have showed no signs of serious repentance, turning away from sin or transformation. As we've talked about numerous times before, and I mean numerous times before, salvation is not about saying a prayer so that we can go to heaven when we die. That is a deficient understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not about fire insurance. It is not about receiving a sacrament like baptism or even the Eucharist for that matter. And then all is well forever as if then we can go and act however we want because I could do whatever I want because I know that I'm going to have the prayer of confession on Sunday morning. Now, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? This is not part of the biblical story. Now, according to our catechism, the outward and visible sign in baptism is water. The inward and spiritual grace in baptism is a death to sin and new birth to righteousness. It's through union relationship with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism, rightly received, I am made God's child by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Catechism um, asks this question, what signs of the Holy Spirit's work do you hope and pray to see as a result of your baptism? And the answer is this, I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit who indwells me will help me to be an active member of my Christian community, participate in worship, Continue in repentance and turn to God, proclaim the faith, love and serve my neighbor, and strive for justice and peace. So in other words, this new life is a transformed life in the kingdom of God. It is about His rule and His reign. His will and His purpose is being done now in our life, in our church, our family, this city, this world. His will being done like it now, like it is in heaven. Salvation is about a new life, a new way of thinking and a new way of living. So all spiritual growth begins with a turning away from what is hindering our obedience. Repentance is about aligning and even realigning our life with God's ways. Salvation is about grace through faith. It is a gift from God. However, we come to this gift through repentance and we live in this grace continually by staying aligned with God's kingdom purposes, which is what repentance is all about. So the story of God as seen in the pages of the Bible and the narratives of church history reveals how God rescues people from traps, bondage, captivity, and slavery, giving freedom, granting fresh starts, and empowering new beginnings. Now, I know we're not a church who says amen an awful lot, but I'm telling you, that's worth saying amen to. I mean, talking about how God takes people who are in captivity, sets them free, and gives us a new start, a new beginning, that's exciting. That's our story. We are people who know what it means to live in slavery and captivity and in prison. Who knows what it means to turn away from God and live according to our own flesh, our own desires. And when we turn and God sets us free and creates a new beginning, a fresh start in us, that's wonderful. That's the gospel. And this starts when we say yes to his call to turn from our way of living, surrendering ourselves to his. And then deliverance, salvation, rescue, and new life comes 
an advent occurs. So when people come for baptism, John is saying they are committing themselves to be the church, the light of the world, the people in whom God's justice would be seen by all people. So this brings us to the Old Testament reading in the book of the prophet Zephaniah. The prophet is as much the voice of Advent as the evangelist John the Baptist. Prophets say what no one wants to hear. They point in directions that no one wants to look. They see God where nobody else would guess that God is present. They feel God's compassion for us, both his anger and joy. They dream God's dreams and they utter wake-up calls. They hope God's hopes and announce a new future. And they will God's will and they live it against all odds. Prophets sing God's song and sometimes interrupt the program with a change of tune. And often prophets gave their own lives because they were faithful to teach this teaching. Zephaniah's song calls people to lament and repent. And Jerusalem is full of idolatry. This is what's going on in the book of Zephaniah before we get to this this point in our reading this morning. Uh, Jerusalem is full of idolatry and complacency. The nation is corrupt. And if you look at everything in this short book preceding our reading today in Zephaniah, it is about God's discipline for Israel's ongoing disobedience and their religious syncretism. Now, if you don't know what that means, they were trying to combine the different religions together. Well, you know that doesn't work with God. It might work with us. We might think that's a good thing, but it does not. it's not a good thing. You know, God always had a way of, of disciplining His people for syncretism. And I'm going to explain a little bit more as I keep going. Jerusalem has reduced the worship of God to a cult among cults, one of a variety of religious options. They bow before the Lord and they tip their hat toward Baal. God totally rejects such easygoing compromise whereby we distribute our loyalties where He is just one among many according to our taste and security and public fashion. So the worship of God has been corrupted. God is jealous when it comes to this. He does not share His Lordship and His kingship. He is either Lord and King, or He is not Lord and King. So people are always, now that sounds like today, doesn't it, by the way? Who is our Lord? Who is our King? Who have we tipped a hat to this week, today, yesterday? What is our idol? Who is our idol? People are always looking for a religion that gives them an inside track with God, but leaves them to live and deal with people however they want. This is the kind of religion that the prophets, Jesus, and the disciples were determined to confront as they were dead set against it. They shared and demonstrated a new way of living. And by the way, this is the, the story as the Old Testament unfolds and the New Testament unfolds. This is what took place in the early church. Are we going to continue that tradition to confront sin when we see sin? Or are we going to just be so easygoing and complacent in the world in which we live today so we do not offend anybody? We need to hear this text in its context in order to capture the abrupt shift that is taking place here in the middle of Zephaniah 3. Israel was told to sing. Now, so there's a shift here. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, something um, different. It, and, and so Israel's told to sing and to raise the rafters, to be happy and to celebrate. They were told not to despair. Why? Our entire Old Testament reading is about God's salvation here. God is happy 
to have you back and he will calm you with his love and delight with um, you with his songs. God will right the wrongs, bring you back into relationship. He will protect you from the enemy and he will make you famous and honored all over the world. He will sing and dance over you with joy. That's what's taking place in our reading this morning. Rejoice. The prophet tells Israel, you will see it with your own eyes. Those painful partings will be turned into reunions. Now, some of us need to hear that, that prophetic word today, that, that God will take our departings, our painful partings, and will turn them into reunions. Because God is in the business of restoring, if we allow him, and renewing and reviving old, dead, torn, broken things in people. That's the story of God's salvation and redemption. Now, this is a powerful word for many of us today. For those of us struggling with fear and stress and anxiety. For those of us battling with depression. Those of us grieving with deep losses. Those of us who have heavy-hearted, broken relationships. Those of us concerned for loved ones who are giving in to the impulses of the flesh. Those of us disturbed by sickness and alarmed by disease. Those of us overwhelmed with the endless expectations and demands put on us from others. For those of us struggling with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And the list goes on and on. This Sunday of Advent, it's about rejoicing. We are growing more aware of Christmas Day approaching with all its light and celebration and also aware of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're in between the times. And we know that Jesus is coming again to make all things new. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Still we wait because this is a good practice. This is a good thing. But we don't always do a good job in it. So we wait. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Just like the faithful of Israel in their day, we wait for the life-changing advent of God, believing that his second arrival in history will put the world to right. And that at at that time, we will experience complete healing in our lives. But we also watch for signs of his coming in the presence in a present time, in our experience today, when we see signs and glimmers of hope, signs of new life breaking forth, we rejoice and we celebrate. We need to hold on to the hope and believe and pray for God to come and bring new life to us, our church, our city, our state, our country, and our world. I love this story in the Old Testament that makes this point so very clear. After the Israelites were set free from bondage in Egypt, they decided to spend uh, some years in the desert. Well, they learned a lot of things while they were in the desert, didn't they? But even though God promised to bring them to the promised land, they sent out 12 spies to check things out. And they brought back from the promised land a cluster of what? Grapes. And the grapes were so large from the promised land that it took two men to carry them. Now, what, this is a beautiful picture of the, where we are right now. We have been set free from Egypt. We're traveling in the desert. And we're waiting for the promise of the promised land. So this is the point I'm trying to make here. That God loves to bring a taste of things to come. 
We might be like those wandering Israelites in the dusty desert, but God comes to meet us in the now with fresh, beautiful, big, luscious grapes from the promised land. In other words, He comes and He breaks in the now with signs of what life is going to be like in the future when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes. And that's why we pray, and we pray as a church, and we pray often, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord loves to break in the now and give us the bread of tomorrow today. As we've talked about before, that's another way of understanding the Lord's Prayer. So held secure between God's past and God's future, we go forward on the journey, strengthened and given hope. And between faith and hope, we are given love because we are given Jesus' own presence. In Philippians 4, we are told to rejoice and to celebrate every day in the Lord, revel in Him. I have to say, it seems rather strange that a man in prison is telling a church to be joyful. But Paul's attitude teaches us an important lesson that our inner attitudes do not have to reflect our outward circumstances. I, I, um, I think I'm preaching to myself probably more than anybody else. But I think that we could all learn that and be reminded of that, don't we? We need to hear that. Paul goes on to say, make it as clear as you can to all people that you're on their side. You're working with them and not against them. Help them to see that Jesus is about to arrive and that he could show up at any moment. That's why we've talked about all the Advent season long that we are to prepare our, our home, our very beings for the very coming of a guest, Jesus Christ. Instead of worry, pray. Let petitions and praises shape our worries into prayers, letting God know our concerns. Before we know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle us down. It's wonderful what happens when Jesus Christ displaces worry at the center of our life. When God breaks in, rejoice and celebrate. I'd like to just read a scripture from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, and it says this, Joyfully pull up buckets of water from the wells of salvation. I love that. Think about that. Joyfully pull up buckets of water from the wells of God's salvation. Luke 3, verse 10, the crowds asked John the Baptist, well, what shall we do? And then John gives some practical ways that we can demonstrate this new, transformed, Christ-shaped life. And John goes on to talk about how Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. We must come to the place that we desperately live, utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit's power to live the Christian life. And to be honest with you, we can't live the Christian life any other way. We need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're commanded by Paul to be continually acted upon by God's Holy Spirit. To be empowered, to be filled with Him. May we drink deeply from all the ways that God makes Himself available to us. Through people, through sacraments, through His Word, through prayer, through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we find ourselves in this in-between time. 
remembering and celebrating your son Jesus as he came to earth as a baby to live a life, to die, to rise again, to show us this new way of living, providing salvation to us. He rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and we know that he one day will come again. So as we are in this in-between time, thank you for the way that you visit your people. But we ask for more, that you will come and bring more of what it's going to be like one day in heaven. Bring more of that today on earth, in our life, in our family. Come and bring your salvation. Come and bring renewal. Come and bring restoration. Take broken things. Take broken people. Take our broken lives, Lord, and mend them and restore them. Lord, as we're called upon during this Advent season to repent, Lord, may we be people who repent and mean our repentance and show forth fruit of our repentance. And Lord, this morning we're thirsty, we're hungry. We ask that you will fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. Empower Your people empower us because we know that we cannot do it apart from you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.